90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Okay, Road Podcaster, Road Podcaster. Yep, we're recording. I have my my lawn chair logger here by me. Lawn chair logger. That's amazing. Yeah. That sounds really good and way lighter than anything I would expect you to um, produce. Oh, I just uh, went and got cutting torch and a bunch of diesel and some other stuff out at uh, the farm. And uh, I am still quite hot. And as Lindy put it, glazed. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yes. Um, I kicked John out and he came home. And he came upstairs and I was like, having you in a small carpeted room is more than I can handle. <laughs> you need to <Yep>. leave. <laughs> there have been several nights this week where I've walked in and just been like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> it is. It's gross out there. Just gross. It is. It's like you're swimming and we're getting ready to have our big workshop next week, which means we're doing a ton of not only prep work, like making sure the labs are ready and the lectures are ready, but also like the grounds and the building. Um, mm-hmm. our, our poor intern had to take a weed eater with a brush blade and knock down about half an acre of tall brush. <laughs> and Yeah. He was I mean, <laughs> also glazed. <laughs> that's um that's a good well-rounded internship is what I have to say about that. <laughs> you get to populate circuit board, you get to play with python and you have to weed eat. Mhm. Yeah, exactly. Um being the director of our field camp, I do a lot of weed eating, which was not anything I would ever expect to um to have been the case, but there you go. You know, you can't be above any job. That's just not right. <laughs> I'll say being a business owner like Yep, there are some times where work's happening that's not necessarily pleasant and you're sitting in there at your computer and then there are the, you know, Sunday nights where you're up there mopping floors. Mm-hmm. Yep. You just got to be ready to uh, ready to do it. That's for sure. <laughs> this yeah, has been... and we're actually... Uh... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, uh, no, go, go for it. I was just going to complain more about the humidity, but we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's part of our topic. So uh, exactly, <laughs> but we've uh, I received several emails from folks about my discussion a few weeks ago of our roof watering system. Yes, yeah, I'm really excited to uh, follow up. Did people have questions about it? Is that like what were people saying about this? Some questions are just saying like, "Oh, that's really neat," um, and we are continuing the progression. Okay. Uh, So we got gutters installed today. Awesome. Which in the middle of workshop preparation is exactly what we needed to deal with. But Uh, yeah, (laughs) that's another story. Heck, and the the temperature today is exactly what they needed to deal with. How terrible, but go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, so they they got gutters on our building. And then uh, the intern and I went and bought two of the large IBC forklift totes. Okay. Which, if you don't know what those are, they're the big polypropylene tanks and metal cages that industrial chemicals get delivered in. Mm-hmm. So they hold 200 gallons. Uh, but I bought them from a bakery. So <laughs> one of mine had uh, sorbitol and the other had honey. Delicious. 
<laughs> yep, there was probably a gallon or two of honey left in that because it oh, holds two hundred. So they didn't. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Did you find this on Craigslist? Where do you find that for sale? Uh, we are near a large commercial bakery, and you oh, can okay. buy drums and totes and pallets and all kinds of stuff from them. Oh, interesting. Okay. So anyway, right. went and bought uh, bought a couple of those, and now we have 400 gallons of water storage equipped at the end of our gutters. That's awesome. That and is awesome. And we're going to, uh, during the workshop, we're not going to have the recirculating pump set up before the workshop. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, so during the workshop, we're still going to use city water, but we're going to be capturing it in the tanks. So over the course of that week, we'll be filling the system. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has brought up some interesting discussions at our shop, and I'm not sure where I land on them. I'm curious oh. what you say. Okay. Hit me. Okay. So we know from math that most of the energy is getting pulled out of the building by evaporation, not conduction. Yes. Okay. The evaporation of water off the roof takes away hundreds to thousands of times more energy than just heating the water. Okay. Via conduction. Yes. All right, so what we'd been doing was trickling the water on the roof slowly so that it barely dripped off the edge. Right. Most of it evaporated on its right. run down to the edge of the roof. Mm-hmm. Yes. That results in uneven roof coating, so uneven cooling. Right. But now we're going to recirculate. So I don't, you know, we, we could pump 300 gallons a minute. It doesn't matter. So no. I could pump enough water for it to be sheeting off the roof. <laughs> Filling right. the gutters. No, I would missed it. But it's not going to evaporate because it would just be literally running and sheeting. So is it like, do we sheet it for, you know, run the pumps for a minute and turn them off for five? Oh, no. Hmm. Okay. And let it all evaporate? Do we still pump at a really slow rate and have uneven cooling? It's... Or so, do we just flood it and say that that's going to cool it enough? How were you doing it? Is So my my first thought is I would soaker hose it. So that's what we have now. Right. And and then that's, okay, so that was my next question was, is that what you're doing right now? And it's like, is there we a way you We have four soaker could... hoses. Okay. How and are they set up? barely crack the faucet. So they each run back to a four-way manifold. Okay. So the hose goes up to the roof. There's a four-way manifold there. We use it to equalize pressures. Mm -hmm. And they each have their own dedicated line. Okay. And they're down the spine of the roof, two on each side of the spine. Mm -hmm. And we just barely have to crack the faucet for enough water to come out of them that a little drips off the edge of the roof. It's about 40,000 gallons a month. Okay. Mm -hmm. But... We could easily triple that with our recirculation system. I think Should you'd have. We? I if I was just designing it and didn't have the the ability to do both. Obviously, you have to do the soaking experiment, right? But I would say that that's not the way to go. But then you would get maybe maybe you'd get some conduction cooling anyway, plus evaporative cooling. I was like, you're still going to have evaporation. You're going to get conduction. Right. Mm -hmm. And 
you're going to have a constant movie stream of water, which right. if that water is basically coating the roof, is going to increase the albedo of the roof. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. And you know, they said, well, how could we figure this out? And I said, well, we could write a model or we could try it. You, like, you, you just try it. Yes. <laughs> Correct. Right. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. If you didn't have the ability to try it, then you should model it. Um, because I would bet. Okay, I'll, I'll just lay it down right now. Yeah, I would bet the soaker hose method, if you increased your amount of soaker hoses, is better. I think pulsed soaker hoses is going to be the answer. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think we pump hard, coat the roof for 60 to 120 seconds, and then stop pumping. Yeah, I like that because then you've... Yeah, because then you've sort of equalized it a little bit and then let it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the bonus is if the pumps don't have to run continuously, I bet with a deep cycle battery and a solar panel, I can do it without running power outside the building. Man, that'd be so cool. How many people are going to stop by and be like, what is happening here? No, they're just going to think you're a grow house, so it won't matter. <laughs> Well, we are another local business has already heard about what we're doing, and they have a lawn sprinkler like a set up on their roof now. Oh my gosh, this is amazing! So you're going to go from manufacturing scientific equipment to just strictly being a roof cooling operation, industrial metal building building cooling solutions. I mean, so every. Tin city, that's what my husband calls these, you know, conglomerations of metal buildings is tin cities. Every tin city here, you know, has tons of grow houses in it. I can imagine that that would be like a low energy thing to help because the the climate control systems on those things are crazy. It'll be the crappiest looking building with like $90,000 worth of heating and cooling equipment, <laughs> you know? Right. So I can imagine that that would do nothing but help lower their cost. So I'm just saying, I know weed's not legal in Arkansas yet, but (laughs) you're pretty close to Oklahoma. (laughs) And I think you could sell a ton of these things. Yeah. We just need to work on the controller and. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Man, I can't wait for some data about this. That's very interesting. If only our humidity would go down and you could get, you know, some better numbers. (laughs) Yeah, so that uh, that's a great segue into, uh, you thought we should talk about something that I was surprised we hadn't, like everything else, wet bulb temperature. I know. Um, and it, this doesn't necessarily mean a whole show. So we'll, you know, talk more about gearing up for the workshop. Because I actually, uh, did you see what I did there? <laughs> gearing up for the <laughs> workshop. Because um, <laughs> I actually have some questions written down, shockingly, about that. Um, but this week... My husband said, have you, because he's the Twitter fanatic of us, and he said, have you seen this mesonet map, this wet bulb globe temperature risk map? That is a mouthful, I know, but that's what it's called in case you wanted to Google the Oklahoma mesonet wet bulb globe temperature risk map. Um, And he said, is this a new type of index that they're using? And I said, oh, no, no, wet bulb temperature isn't new. Um, and I think they've been doing this index map for a while as well, but wet bulb temperature was just like you said, shockingly something we didn't talk about, but more importantly, it's one of my favorite pieces of meteorological equipment is how it's measured. The sling psychrometer. (laughs) 
And so I got really excited and said this to my husband. I was like, oh, no, this is what wet bulb temperature is. And you measure it with a sling psychometer, which is basically a sock on the end of a thermometer that you whip around really fast. And he immediately glazed over and was very sad that he had asked this question. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Or if you go for the slightly more modern version, it's the thermometer uh, that is aspirated by some fan. Yeah, that's not fun, though. Why would you ever want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've used these. Uh, I think uh-huh, all yep. of us that did a meteorology program had to take manual sling psychrometer measurements at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so before we get to the index map of the mesonet and why it's sort of important, web bulb temperature, right? So it's exactly what we just said. It's basically like if you put – we're talking about evaporative cooling with John Droof. And so evaporative cooling potential is important, especially to people, right? Because if you're out working and it's really humid, that's actually a lot more dangerous than if it's not humid, like in Colorado, and it's really hot because you can cool yourself down by sweating and then evaporating that. But if you can't evaporate a lot because there's already a lot of humidity in the air, you can get overheated very quickly, much more quickly than at that same dry bulb temperature in a different humidity regime. Right. So you, you take your sling psychometer and you, you get the little the little sock booty wet and it goes over one thermometer. The other one's not. And you whip it around in the air for at least a minute. And that water evaporates, cooling that one thermometer. And that is the wet bulb temperature. And surprisingly enough, even if you are a heat adapted person like all of us that live in Arkansas and Oklahoma, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Anything past a wet bulb temperature of 90 Fahrenheit, you you can't carry out normal activities. Yeah. And that doesn't sound that hot, right? That doesn't sound that hot for Arkansas, Oklahoma's summertime. But that's the coolest you could get, right, if you were looking at this evaporative cooling. And so... If you were a perfect spherical sweating yes. object. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, <laughs> right. And and that's, I mean, that's equivalent. If you convert that to heat index, it's it's around 130. Yeah. That's, so that's not safe, which is why instead of saying to the people, the web bulb temperature is 95, don't do anything dumb. The mesonet has this wet bulb global temperature risk. And while it does display the web bulb temperature it also has like the risk factors um labeled in here in colors so you can see not in jet colors either (laughs) right and you know you said 95 which i just want to point out Uh, yeah (laughs) so let's say that you were outside you had access to shade and you had unlimited water your life expectancy is a couple of hours at a wet bulb temperature of 95. It is impossible, even with unlimited water and shade, for a human to survive at 95 wet yeah. bulb. And we've had some really high wet bulb temperatures lately. Yes, we have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you more so than us. I'm sort of on the western edge of it because we're so much drier usually than um, you guys are in eastern Oklahoma and Arkansas. But I mean, it's been in the, I was trying to find the last 
the last wet bulb temperature readings, but it's been in the 90s. Like, it's very black, and black is the extreme danger category. Yeah, so, you know, uh, right now, as we record this at almost 10 o'clock at night, uh, the wet bulb globe temperature by me is 82. <laughs> yeah, this is crazy. This is this is why I was glazed just loading a cutting torch and a few things today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it takes a while to, like, figure this out as a person, I feel like, because when I really started to understand what this meant, despite doing these sling psychrometer measurements, which if you think it's easy to sling that thing around for a minute, it is not... <laughs> If you're right. not, you know, <laughs> in shape. Yeah, all these little nerd arms get real tired after a minute. Um, <laughs> but we, my friend and I did cross-country bike or cross-state bike rides. And so we did one across Oklahoma, and it goes from south to north in June. And yeah, it's hot. It's really hot. But then we did one at the end of July from west to east across Iowa. And that despite being 10 to 15 degrees cooler was the worst because the humidity would be like 80% and you just couldn't cool down. So you're going, you know, 20 miles an hour on this bike, but you can't cool down because there's nowhere for your sweat to evaporate. So it was worse. Yeah, (laughs) it was way worse. I'm like, Oh, I understand what this means now. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, deep South folks really get the idea of ultra high humidity days. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But instead of just so being this like, is important it's, and it, well, it's, it's related to heat stress, right? Right. Because just what you said, we can start to take all of this and mash it together and we need somebody more experienced at what these, these indices mean which luckily we know some people right (laughs) um but we do we know somebody who was instrumental in getting the mesonet to report these things instrumental was that another (laughs) other pun Mm Hmm. okay great (laughs) trying to measure Uh, myself though so uh, oh oh man (laughs) um okay So (laughs) the chart to look at and the chart that has gotten a lot of tweets lately is this wet bulb globe temperature category work rest and water intake map, which is a mouthful. Um, But like we said, it's that extreme risk. And so this is really actually very interesting because they've taken into account all these things, air temperature, relative humidity, wind speed, and sunlight together to create these maps. Um, because we use heat stress index. We've done this for livestock forever, you know, for people that work on outside, but that's just air temp and relative humidity, right? That wet bulb globe temperature is better because it will include stuff like sunlight and then wind speed, because if you've got wind, you can evaporate and that's good. But if you have sunlight, it's obviously hotter. So there are maps that they've made that tell you what those risks are. And then there's a really cool chart that we won't get into um, that goes from, you know, no risk to extreme risk and whether you're unacclimated or acclimated to the heat and basically like what you can do, like how much you can work and how much you should rest and how much water you should be drinking. And I thought that was actually very interesting. And I will be using this during field camp. (laughs) 
in the future because it's very hard to it's very hard to once you've gotten a heat related illness to ever get over it like for the rest of your life like you will become more susceptible to heat related illness at like lower lower temperatures lower working conditions than people who have never had like heat stroke before so this is really important because once you get sick you've kind of hosed yourself for the rest of your life you get sick a lot faster so knowing you know empirically what you should be looking at i think this does a really good job yes and we're going to be using this as part of our uh, daily hazards briefing at the workshop even yeah i think that is a great idea mhm and hopefully we can get um our good buddy at the tulsa weather service on here um to talk about how to do some of these measurements and why it was important to get these um you know connected to the public on a daily basis because it seems like a really important thing that we should be paying attention to and we'll learn more about what it has to do with toilet floats but that's a story for another day <laughs> we don't want to steal anybody's thunder right <laughs> but yeah so uh yep <laughs> i thought we should talk about that because that was really interesting it was a weather question that we got this week um yeah, and I know you're very busy this week. <laughs> oh, man, am I? <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and so we'll do a much bigger show once you have time to breathe, to debrief about um, this workshop you have coming up, which is super awesome. Um, but I have some questions just about putting something together because you've taught a lot of classes before. But this is a little bit different. And I just, I want to know, like, how is this so much different than just your normal week-long teaching that you do very frequently? Right. So the the teaching, the week-long teaching that I normally do is programming. Mm-hmm. So we're all sitting in front of computers all day in the air conditioning. We're mm-hmm. tappy-tap-tapping on the keyboards. Uh, I normally co-teach quite a bit of it. And so there's somebody to help troubleshoot. And it's largely folks that have the domain expertise and want to apply uh, some new tools to it Okay. through Python in my case. And that's similar to what we're doing here. But this is a lot more stressful to put together. (laughs) (laughs) Is it just because you're... But we're not tapping on keyboards all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. So this workshop is not that. It's a mix of a lot of mechanical knowledge, too. As you prepared for this, did you find that not knowing the background of the people who are coming to learn from you, is that made it harder? Somewhat. And so I ask in the uh, registration survey, uh-huh. uh, you know, like on a scale of, you know, something to something, and they were funny. Uh, but I used our Likert scale that we talk about yeah. in fun papers so much, right? <laughs> um, so, like, you know, one of the questions was like, when it comes to mechanical things, I can. And one of them was <laughs> not figure out which end of a screwdriver to pick up. And the other <laughs> one, 
was weld better than I can write or something <laughs> like that, you know? Um, and then, you know, when it comes to programming, I don't know where to start or I write Python better than English <laughs> mm-hmm. or, you yeah. know, there are funny things. So I asked that about programming and about electronics and about mechanical things. And the response was almost exactly what I expected. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. All right. Um, so it was, they, they were relatively Gaussian, which I was thankful for. Mm-hmm. Most people said they were very, very comfortable programming, not so comfortable with mechanical things and <laughs> scared to death of electronics. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, the electronics and mechanical were more similar than dissimilar. Like they were both towards the very low end of the Likert scale there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so what's terrifying for me is, well, one, this is unlike a normal workshop where we just have to secure a space and tell everybody to bring their laptops. Mm-hmm. We have to prepare a lot of physical materials. Right. Like we've probably brought in 500 pounds of metal. Wow. And uh, got more machines rigged up and ready to use. We've designed, I think, four or five purpose-designed circuit boards for students to use. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. I mean, Um, you know, fun to crank all that out. <laughs> yeah, and purchased over fifteen hundred dollars in electronics components and accessories. All right, mm-hmm. it's terrifying uh, because th- th- these are these are the hands-on skills that we need in science. Right. Yes, they used to be taught by shop class, and that's not happening anymore. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh. So the goal of this workshop, which uh, very creatively, thanks to former guest of the show, Eric Bruning, is named Gears, Generalist <laughs> Electromechanics for Applied Researchers. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> yep. Um, we're going to do, like, day one is all about, well, mostly about electronics. Electronics, schematics, and operational amplifiers. Day two, we're talking about how to design a data acquisition system, how to work with different transducers how to do calibrations, what a control system is, and fluid power, like hydraulics, pneumatics. Uh, Day three, how do you design stuff that can be made? Ooh. Uh, Because we get a lot of drawings of stuff that can't. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you actually make things? What do you have to think about if you're going to the field? Uh, Mm -hmm. Then... Uh, we're doing a half a day on LabVIEW, and we're doing a half day on Arduino. That's exciting. It's a lot of information. It's drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. And sort of the statement <laughs> that we're putting out at the beginning is like, you will not be an expert. <laughs> you may not even be proficient in any of these when you leave. But you know they exist. Mm-hmm. You're going to have done something. And you can run with this information and expand your knowledge where you need it for what you're going to do. 
or use it to save yourself money and time by working with contractors like us right on a project in the future yeah because they now know what you can do exactly mm-hmm. well and you know it's sometimes we get projects in that could be done easily and it results in them spending a lot of money and us spending time on something that we really didn't need to. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not opposed to making money on easy projects. <laughs> but everybody's better served if those never cross our door. Yeah. We get to the hard stuff quicker. Right. And we save everybody money. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that's, that's what cool. sort of the goal of this workshop is. Okay. Giving that's great. 20 something people access to a cutting torch that have <laughs> probably never even seen one in real life before terrifies me. <laughs> oh, it'll be fine. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we're going to be going from you know, every day is half a day of lecture, which is real still, you know, it's very interactive still. Right. Uh, and the other half of that day is all hands-on labs. We split up into four groups and each group spends an hour at each of four activity stations for that day. That's awesome. So uh, on most days it's labs in the afternoon, but not all because of this heat stress. Like I am not going to put people outside welding Mm -hmm. at 2 PM. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good call. So those labs are happening in the morning. But mm-hmm. it's going to be very, it's going to be like what we do at our shop. You know, one morning you might be working on uh, electronics and the next morning you might have a welder in your hand and the next morning uh, you might be learning how to tap poles on a milling machine. Yeah. I, I think this is super cool. Um, so with all these varied things that you just described going through that lineup, how on earth did you decide what you wanted like the learning objectives to be for this? Ooh, so that's a good one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, we taught a version of this course at Penn state as a semester long class. Okay. It was not nearly as hands-on as I wanted it to be Mm -hmm. just because of restrictions. Like, you know, we, we couldn't take students into the machine shop and turn them loose. Penn state was not about to give us approval to turn them loose with, Hot work oh, tools. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started planning. I mean, we started talking about this workshop about a year ago, and probably six months ago, I spent several evenings sitting down and writing out a bunch of possible lab activities, what the learning objectives would be, and how we could do that. And we've just been filtering it down and filtering it down because each day of content could be a week-long class. Right. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or if not more. If not more, right. Uh, like, I'm giving myself an hour and a half to cover, like, electronics basics and how to read a schematic. <laughs> it, okay. You know, that's <laughs> year one, maybe two, of electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Um, so we can't go super deep on that. Uh but then there are also some safety things because a lot of folks don't realize 
how big something is or how dangerous something is or how much pressure something's under. Right. Or how not dangerous it is too. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So on day one, you know, the first, actually the second thing on the schedule (laughs) is uh, a, the fire department is coming up. Oh. (laughs) And they're going to set a bunch of pallets on fire. (gasps) And every single person, if they are going to work in the workshop at all, has to use a fire extinguisher and put a burning pallet out. That's so much fun. (laughs) Fire extinguishers aren't something to be scared of. And I don't want you to burn our shop down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's one thing that our um, fire marshal OU, Justin Daniels, has, they have a a little portable thing that they set on fire and they carry around fire extinguishers and they do demonstrations with students and let students use it. It's actually a really neat thing because I was always terrified of having this compressed can of, you know, stuff hanging out too. Like, how would I ever use that? And it is not scary. It's fun, actually. It is not. (laughs) Uh, And that's a very real life skill. Like that may not only apply to the workshop or your lab that applies to your house. Uh huh. Yeah. Or your place of business or anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, so like that was some of the learning objectives too, is like, what are some of the just general life skills that we need to make sure you've got? Right. Uh, because if you're going to be doing any kind of work with tools at some point, you're going to have a fire. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then like on a, a data acquisition system is a learning objective to teach you how to design your own data acquisition system from scratch. No, (laughs) that is something that even very experienced electrical engineers have issues with (laughs) in some of the applications that we have to deal with these high speed, ultra low noise, ultra tiny signal. Yeah. No, it's to tell you the challenges some common problems that we see and some solutions to those problems, how Mm -hmm. to spec something out so you can come to us or anybody really and say, here's what I need and understand and have an intelligent conversation about that. Right. Because the number of times, and this is, I mean, this is part of what we offer as our business, right? Is, you know, talk to somebody and say, okay, you want to measure this how precisely do you need to measure it? And the answer is always as precise as possible. Right. (laughs) That's really not an answer. And the number of zeros you want to put on that check has a direct bearing on that. This is such an interesting thing that I never thought about in as much detail as I do not being your friend. Like being your friend has made me think about this so much more because Yeah, that's what I would say too, right? Yeah, I want this thing to be as precise as possible. But when I think about our cryogenic magnetometer, you know, its its actual capabilities is, they're squandered because there's no way we can get the magnetic noise low enough to be able to, you know, measure what it's capable of measuring, which maybe this is why the company that makes it has come out with this less... um, it's a tabletop magnetometer versus our huge one and it doesn't have the resolution, but also, you know, maybe it doesn't need it. And so you think, Oh, it has less resolution, but it's less than half the cost. 
And it yes. works for, yeah, it works for most things. And I would be like, well, I don't want that. But no, you're exactly right. When you're the one coughing up that money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this well, is or, something you should think about. You know, we've had uh, a while back a project where they wanted to measure some uh, some atmospheric variables. Mm-hmm. And had bought some equipment already and want us to just hook it up and write some code for it. Sure, we can do that. But what made you choose this equipment? I said, you must be very interested in the amount of moisture in the atmosphere. And, you know, they're like, well, no, we just kind of wanted to measure that as a something else to have in case it's interesting in this data set. Mm hmm. Well, you could have spent about a grand less per unit if you were willing to give up that 0.1%. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Which some people might not care about, but most of us have to care about that. <laughs> well, and then on the flip side of that, also, one of the activities, which I am dying to see how this turns out, uh, I, I know how some of it's going to go, but in the calibration lab, Mm-hmm. I hear so many times people say, well, now that sensors cost nothing, you know, we'll just put <laughs> thousands of whatever out there. And I keep saying they're not good sensors. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Well, it doesn't matter, you know, machine learning or you know, <sighs> insert buzz phrase here. Yes. Doesn't matter. But it does. And uh, so each student is going to get their very own less than $2 precision in quotes, temperature sensor that measures out to the hundredth of a degree. Uh (laughs) And they're all going to go through a calibration cycle in our thermal chamber. Mm -hmm. And having only done a subset of eight, I got a spread of plus or minus 0.8 degrees. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. That's right. Which, you know, you say, well, you can calibrate that out. Yep. And when you do, guess what? It's not a cheap sensor anymore. It costs fifty, eighty, hundred dollars, just like every mm-hmm. other calibrated scientific instrument out there. Yeah, exactly. Yep. This is and it depends what you want. I have this argument every time we have to go buy Bruntons because I made a big deal about buying Brunton Bruntons, not cheap twenty dollar Amazon versions of them, you know, because it's like, yeah, okay, they're all right for field camp. You know, where you're just making this map that students make every year, hundreds of students, and it does nothing. But also, we use these Bruntons for, you know, students check these out for their research. So do you want that? When actually, you know, those five degrees that it could be off, now it does matter. So you've got to think about those things before you're like, I got this $2 compass on Amazon. It'll be fine for my highly scientific research that I'm doing. Right. Or like if, if you're just measuring temperature as a, well, you know, it'd be nice to, nice to know the temperature of while I was doing this experiment in the, Mm -hmm. in the lab or something, it could be off plus or minus two degrees and you don't care. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So knowing how to make those decisions is a big part of this course and not just on sensors, but everything. Everything mm-hmm. we're talking about is how do you make the decision? Because it is always, always a trade-off mm-hmm. between money, time, and capability. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And no, you cannot have all three. If you're <laughs> lucky, you can have two. 
most of the time it's one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you have all three, you open your own business and sell it to other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you have all three, contact me. We'll go live on a private island. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> huh. Okay. Um. So my next one being the academic that I am, how are you going to accept to assess these learning outcomes at the end of the week? So we have an exit survey. Okay. I'm sure it is not one that would be blessed by a learning <laughs> evaluation expert. <laughs> Good thing. But we no have one... an exit survey. Mm-hmm. Yep. So okay. uh, we're going to use this uh, as a springboard to say, what can we do better next time? Okay. Uh, did everybody feel that these were relevant skills? Did they feel that it was too hands-on, not hands-on enough? Was it too undirected? Because I know that makes some people uncomfortable, but that's research. Right. Yep. Um, you know, I had some of the guys testing out labs this week, and one of the labs said, well, you don't say, like, what what switches to, to actuate to do this? I said, well, guess you got to try it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, or like, you know, what baud rate is this sensor working at? It's like, well, you just got to try them until you find one that works. Because mm-hmm. that's how I have to do it every time I walk into a new machine in a new lab. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Okay. And there's a lot, of, like one of the scenarios for the labs, because mm-hmm. this is something we deal with a lot, is you got a sensor from manufacturer X. And they have a piece of software that you use on your PC and you hook it to it and it, you set it up and you collect your data. You now want to deploy sensor X in the field because it's amazing. And you don't want to leave a laptop there because you don't have power, you don't have money, you don't have something. Or it's, it's in the middle of the desert and the laptop will die a heat death. Mm-hmm. So now you need to hook it to, say, an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi. but the manufacturer doesn't have any details about what commands are going back and forth between the computer and the instrument. So we give them a mystery instrument and say, here's a mystery instrument. Here's some bus sniffers. Figure it out. That's awesome. That's super cool. And it's a pretty basic mystery instrument. Like the commands are pretty nice. Uh, Yeah. But it, it's it's something we do all the time. It's what we did when we saw your magnetometer. I know. That's what we I was to, just. <laughs> we had to sit there with a bus sniffer for two days and just figure out what it was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> hmm. That's super cool. That's really cool. And it's also given us some chances to do things that I never get to. Some stuff I've never really got to sit down and go through. You know how when you prepare for a class, you actually learn a lot? Oh, so much. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, preparing, like writing a lab on instrumentation amplifier, cascading gain and op amps. Mm -hmm. Okay, why is this? Like, I know this is a thing because I use this rule of thumb when I design circuits or whatever, but why? And, you know, two hours later, I'm like, oh, 
whoa, like <laughs> I love <laughs> got it. a whole deeper. And a lot of that's probably not things I can convey in the workshop. Uh, no, but but it's you're but getting something out of, of it too. Mm-hmm. See, this is why I love to teach different and new classes because every time something like that happens, and I think I'm yeah, I might be more addicted to that feeling than actually like imparting knowledge onto young minds. <laughs> well, and the last day, I'm real excited because the the first hour is all about how to troubleshoot, which is mostly a lecture topic, just. Hey, so you approach something that's not working. Like, here are the things that I would do if I were you. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you email me and say something's not working, help. These are the first five things I'm going to tell you to go do. So just do them. Uh, following that, for the rest of the morning and into two o'clock in the afternoon when we end, we have various scientists who build stuff. Or have tackled some of these obstacles, mm-hmm. giving short 15 to 30 minute talks on this is how I use these skills that you just have been learning all week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've got uh, Eric Bruning talking about how he does his own lightning sensors. You're going to talk about how you learn to love the magnetometer. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I'm there yet, but. <laughs> uh, and then we're going to have. Uh, Actually, one of our one of our customers that does some really cool sensor work with fiber optics that we I mean we don't know anything about fiber optics really. Mm-hmm. Um, we know the very basics, and we design circuit boards uh, that help him do his work. But I said, hey, would you be willing to come and talk to us for thirty minutes and educate all of us on what you do? That's cool. Like I know what you do is very cool, and I know that we've helped in some small way. <laughs> but educate us. See, and that's really cool too. To This is like one of those things where I think make good teachers is the thing you're doing right there is that you don't know and you're okay. This is a broader topic, but you're okay saying in front of all these people who are paying you to learn from, you're okay saying, look, I don't know this stuff. I'm going to bring this dude in who does know it. Who's going to talk about it. I think that's very important for students to see, you know, like, because I know there are some grad students and stuff coming to this. And I think that's a super important thing for them to see. It's important for the person you're learning from to be able to say, I don't know. Let's find out. Oh, we'll be saying, I don't know a lot (laughs) in this workshop. Uh, And that's part, part of what I'm looking forward to the most is I've encouraged everybody to say, Hey, if you're working on something right now, in your lab, bring it. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to have time Friday afternoon after we end. Everybody's going to have beers in the evening. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. bring it. Let's think about it. Let's look yeah. at it. Let's problem. Mm-hmm. And we've already had some folks saying like, Hey, I'm going to bring this thing. You know, it's a sensor. We're having some trouble or one even like, Hey, I need a part for one of my experiments. And it's a really mm-hmm. easy one. Like, can I make it on a lathe while I'm there? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you bet. Um, So we're going to solve some real research problems too. Yeah, I think that's really great. This will be a good week. It'll be exhausting. Oh, I'm already tired. (laughs) It hasn't even started. (laughs) It hasn't even Uh, started. (laughs) 
going through all the labs, you know, you can write the labs and they look great on paper and then you go, go through them and you're like, why isn't this working? Yeah. This should, okay. So mm-hmm. then you solve all that and then you hand it to somebody else and watch in horror <laughs> as they completely misunderstood what you wrote. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so that's been... That's been an experience. Uh, our lathe, the digital readout on it that lets you see where you are down to 50 millionths of an inch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were re- test running one of the labs and I pressed the zero button and apparently <laughs> that was the kiss of death. <laughs> and it just bit the dust. So, Okay, so that's terrible. <laughs> and obviously like Murphy's Law, all right there. Right. But I mean, thank God it happened before, right? Yeah, I mean, we could have done it. It just would have been much harder mm-hmm. <laughs> without a digital readout. And so now, you know, we had one overnighted and we're going to have it on. It's just going to be close. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. But mm-hmm. stuff like that's going to happen Yeah. during the workshop, I know. And we're just going to turn those into teachable moments. Like, if that had happened, it, that would have very quickly turned into a, somebody get a screwdriver, we're going to take this apart and see if we can fix it. Right, Yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. Which is a skill you need when you're out in the field with some piece of equipment and you don't have an option. You're it. You fix it yeah. or you don't, you don't gather your data. So. Mm-hmm. And I'm also really excited. So we've got uh Penn States uh, lab tech is coming down. Cool. And I'm very excited because we made some, piezo transducer holders for them a while back Mm -hmm. and getting the transducers in and mounted and electrically connected was a nightmare. Like it was not, there wasn't a really good way to do it that we could figure (laughs) out. We spent probably 80 hours on this Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, he said, Hey, I've, I've made some progress on this. Right. By all means, bring it. Show us, show everybody. Like we've got a document camera that you can hold this stuff in front of and talk about it. Please show us because uh-huh. we're not stingy with information at all. Right. The, the goal of this is not to, to take just enough that, you know, you need to call us, you know, no, we want people to walk away with real useful skills. Uh, and this to be a, a forum now and for future iterations to exchange information. Yeah. I think that that'll be a really great part of it. I want me to be in the schedule less every year. Right. And other people to be coming in and saying, Hey, you know, I did this thing and it was amazing. I want to talk about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, this is exciting. I'm super stoked to see how this goes. I'm very excited. Uh, I'm very nervous. Mm-hmm. I'm very tired. Yep. Yeah. That's just going to get worse. <laughs> it's just going to get worse. Um, <laughs> but I'm very much looking forward to it. We'll have a full debrief on yep. everything that happened. I'm sure. Uh, so, so next week's show might be a tad late. Yes. Um, but I will say, I hope you're going to have lots of, you know, bathroom breaks in here. 
Oh man, that's so close to the the transition I was going to use. I was going to say I've been so busy, I've hardly had time to take a poop. And that takes us to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. (laughs) I can't stop and I won't stop. (laughs) That's what I have to say. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, this was a doozy. Uh, and for those of you that are still with us after that last one, thanks. Um, <laughs> the the pop science article on this was called "Sometimes This Comb Jelly Has an Anus, and Sometimes It Doesn't." Uh, and the though it's the based pa- on, of course, the paper from Invertebrate Biology. Yeah, see, this is a legit thing. Defecation by the tenophore Nemopsis laidi <laughs> occurs with an ultra radian rhythm through a singular transient anal pore by Sydney Tam. Let's uh let's focus on these last four words. Single transient anal pore. <laughs> let's do. Okay, so jellyfish are amazing. Uh, yes. we actually talked, talked about it last, last week. week. Yep. yep. Okay. So uh, and comb jellies are right up there with amazing. Mhm. Yeah, really cool looking. They're little bitty baby things, super cute. And they have a butthole when they need to poop. And it goes away and becomes unblemished skin when they don't. And it moves every time. Um, can we go back to talking about how cool they are? Because um, when I was looking up this specific tenophore, uh, they're also called sea walnuts, sea gooseberries, and Venus's girdles. <laughs> Fascinating. Ah, uh, yeah, isn't it? Um, yeah. So apparently, they <laughs> ingest something. Fine. Okay, that's what they do because jellyfish are terrible, scary things that eat lots of stuff. Um, and their stomach obviously changes shape, and then it's got a poop. Right. And so literally like it's esophagus like turns off still there, but turns off and then it grows an anal cavity that expels what needs to be expelled. And then it goes away. That's unbelievable. <laughs> and the process was amazing. And I just stomach change shape, but it turns into a box. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was weird too. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, the description, I don't want to read the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> also, this is also fascinating, just that it's just another single author paper, which we just recently talked about. Yes. How that's so uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I thought um, that too. Okay. So let's see. As the lobe reaches maximum volume, a pore opens, releasing a stream of poo as particles and <laughs> <in> clumps. <laughs> That's from the author, too, by the way. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but before the pore opened, the skin was uniformly smooth, and there was no sign that a pore had opened there before. Really interesting. And to, like, cycle, you know? Like, you eat, sits there in your weird box of a stomach, you poop, and then it goes away. Like, why? 
Well, I mean, that's the whole point of this. This is a brand new paper. Well, new last year paper. Um, like, why? What is the advantage of this occurring? Right. Mm-hmm. And it, it says seems that, like it's a very energy expensive process. Correct. Yeah. And it says this particular jelly to date is the only known animal that has this transient anal pore. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting as to, yeah, what is the advantage to having this? I mean, jellyfish are aliens, right? So I guess we might not never know. <laughs> but right. um, what was also neat about this that I thought you might might enjoy too is they found it by um, – it was microscopy that found it. Yeah. So he was doing differential interference contrast microscopy that showed this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So microscopes, again, you put anything under a microscope and it instantly becomes more interesting. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. That is exactly right. Um, I grabbed a whole bunch of sand from our trip from a bunch of different areas, which the kids are like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, you guys better get ready because you're going to have some learning experiences. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I got the microscope out and we looked at this little sand with all the shell particles and then the sand that was further up the dunes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, I thought that was interesting because this, the same thing, you know, this, this particular jelly has been studied before and that hadn't been observed. But now that you record them with the microscope, so they're using this video um, and they saw all these new features and the fact that it's poop hole goes away. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So there you go. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll uh, keep shoveling more of these your way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, if uh, you know, we're not going to ask for observations this week. Nope, let's not. <laughs> instead, we're going to change it back to episode 300 is coming up and I still want more audio messages from you. Yes. So please, please record a quick phone message. Tell us hello. And we'll play it on episode 300. Awesome. Please send those to us. I'm taking it away from you, John. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, you can shoot that to us on Twitter. We are at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Um, thank you, as always, to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support this and hear more poop fun papers... <laughs> You can do so. We're on patreon.com slash don't panic geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. <laughs>